What is up, everybody? This is Ryan. I have an awesome founder on today, Pete Hunt. Pete, actually, really cool experience, was building a competitive product at Meta uh, right before they acquired Instagram. And then on top of it, talks about his story with his meetings with Mark Zuckerberg, also uh, getting asked to play roller hockey with him and why he didn't. And then he later built a company that he sold to Twitter uh, for over $65 million and just recently started another startup about a year and a half ago. Really cool story. We go deep down some interesting areas that you're not going to want to miss. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. So my guest is revolutionizing the way we harness the power of data and artificial intelligence. He previously was on Instagram's web team, where he built Instagram's business analytics products and helped open source Facebook's React.js. He then co-founded with CEO of Smite, which is an anti-abuse provider that was acquired by Twitter, and now is the co-founder and CEO of Elemental, which is a data orchestration platform built for productivity. Pete, welcome. Happy to have you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to be here. Yeah. You, I mean, and I, I didn't say your last name, Pete Hunt, I should say. Pete Hunt. I just said Pete, right? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, everyone knows who Madonna is, right? So maybe they should all know who Pete Everybody is. Everybody knows who who's Pete is. That's probably the best one-liner anybody's had to begin the show, man. So uh, props to you for that. So want to get into your background because there's some really cool things that you've done in the past and love to dig into that. But before we do, let's do a real quick revenue rundown. So what is your current ARR? We're at a couple million ARR. Okay, excellent. So two mil, uh, and then what's your primary revenue growth go-to-market strategy? Yeah, so we, we have a combination of open source PLG. So uh, we target data and ML engineers as our customer. And so we, we give them a, a free and open source version of the product um, that they can then go and try and even deploy internally across their whole enterprise if they wanted to. Uh, but for, for most enterprises that really have something that, um, that they, you know, large enterprises have, have, have enterprise level concerns. They need auditing. They need, they need um, access control. They need support for large team features. And so we have a commercial version that gives them all that and more. Okay. And, and that, that's sold by a, by a direct, uh, direct, direct sales force. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that sounded like an enterprise play. Is that more like outbound then? So you have a combination of PLG and then direct sales. You know, mo- most, it? most of our revenue comes inbound actually. Oh, wow. Um, okay. yeah. So th- usually what happens is a, is a customer hears about us through some kind of organic channel. They try the open source project. Um, and then, uh, and then they, they start a sales conversation with us. Okay. Love that. Uh, and so then wh- how many people do you have on your team right now? Uh, we, I think I just hired my 45th employee uh, today. Does that seem big? Most people say once they get over 40, it starts to seem a little big. Uh, well, it doesn't seem big yet. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, the last uh, five employees that we've hired uh, haven't started yet. So I think maybe when they actually uh, start in a couple of weeks, they'll, uh, okay. it'll start to feel a little bit bigger. Love that. So... Uh, Pete slash Madonna, what, how would you describe your solution like in a couple sentences? Yeah, so uh, we, we're on a mission to bring software engineering best practices to the data space. So if you take a look at, at 
data and how it's used by businesses. They're making incredibly important decisions based on data. You know, they are deciding, you know, who gets a mortgage, who gets prioritized at the hospital. Like all these are data-driven decisions. And somewhere in that decision-making process, a data engineer has built a data pipeline which takes data from source systems, transforms it, and makes automated decisions, then produces a report or machine learning model or a dashboard that helps influence or drive those decisions. And the state of the art for a really long time has been to put these data pipelines together with uh, duct tape and chewing gum or whatever metaphor you want to use for it. And when you think about the, the like importance of these decisions being made in the lack of rigor, often that, 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 that kind of comes with the tools that, that these practitioners have available to them. Um, it's really a bummer. And so, uh, we started the company to basically bring the state of the art of software engineering best practices to build really rock solid, testable uh, data pipelines that you can trust um, and bring best in class tooling to data and ML engineers to to be able to support that the development of that stuff. Okay, love that, love that. So makes a lot of sense. Love. I mean, it, it is true. There's there's massive decisions being made now. So it's interesting. And I love your description of like duct tape and chewing gum and the way they're they're cobbled together. Cause like it's as we talked in the pre-show, it's applicable to so many other parts and so many other types of business or components of business. So uh, last but not least, are you bootstrapped or funded? We're funded. Okay. Have you been funded since day one or no? Yeah, yeah. So Sequoia led our, our seed round. Um, and then uh, Mike Volpe at Index came in for our Series A. And we actually just closed our Series B um, earlier this year. Uh, that was led by Georgian. Oh, congratulations. Okay. So, yeah, thanks. So let's get into kind of how you got to this point, right? So it, you did some really interesting things over at Instagram and, and Meta. So what was your experience there? And then, you know, how did that I mean, that was in 2013, 2014. So mm. rather early on, like, what was the environment like? How many people were there? Like, just walk us through that that journey with with um, what happened there. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's rewind a bit. Okay. Um, I was uh, I was in grad school trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, like, I had to get a job. Uh, the Social Network, the movie, had just come out. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. Yeah, that I remember one. that. Uh, it was a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, and I was like, you know, Facebook, believe it or not, was a really cool product back then. Uh, it was not the, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was like, you know, all the cool kids were on Facebook and they were always yeah. using it all the time on college campuses. And so I really wanted to work there and I got an offer and my mom watched the social network. She was like, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't seem like a very nice boy. <laughs> uh, but I ended up taking the offer anyway. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I, I, had, um, been a couple of meetings with Zuck, by the way. He's a very nice guy. I, I'm, I'm like pro Facebook, pro Mark Zuckerberg. Okay, that's cool. Um, I'll I'll fly the flag. Uh, but um, so so I, I went to work there and uh, had a really great run there. You know, one of the things that I thought was really fun was I joined the photos and videos team, which was you know one of the most popular products that Facebook had at the time. And we were very frantically building a mobile app to compete with Instagram. That's called Facebook Camera. And, you know, one of my first like Silicon Valley experiences was getting the call from the VP engineering and they, we, they called the team in early one morning. They were like, Hey, we just acquired that competitor that you've been trying to kill for the past three months. Like, oh. <laughs> uh, get excited or past, um, it was longer than three months we were working on that thing. But, uh, so, so then we, we integrated 
Instagram into the company and I went over to work on that team and, and all those people were super nice and great. And so it was really positive and fun, uh, fun experience uh, working there. That okay. Time. Love that. Were you, do you think you were going to get fired originally when they, when they said they acquired uh, Instagram or no? Uh, man, it was 2011 in the tech industry. No one ever got fired. <laughs> what do you, what do you think? I know this is totally side, but what do you think about threads? Uh, I, I use it. Um, I think it's a very well done app. Uh, I know a lot of people, um, that worked on it and, uh, and, and they're, they're great, uh, great, uh, product people. You know, I think the thing that I don't like about threads is it's a lot of brands being brands and a lot of people engaging with brands. And like, I'm not a guy that engages with brands. And so it's, it might not be my cup of tea, but I'm giving it a shot. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I've tried it as well. And, uh, I think it's interesting. I have, I'm the same thing. I'm not like a big brand engager, if you will. Like I'd rather talk to people, but I, I haven't been that active on Twitter, which is going to take us to our next point. And I'm like, Oh, this is like, you know, Twitter 2.0 with uh, dis- you know, pre-built distribution and it's starting instead of starting from zero, it's got, you know, the whole Facebook engine behind it, or meta, I should say. So really interesting. Do you think it's going to surpass Twitter or complement it? Or um, you think it's, it's not going to work out? What's your thoughts right now? I know it's early on. We're like, we're like a week into it as time of recording. So Pete's going to bust out his uh, crystal ball. Tell us what's going to happen. And then we can revisit this like five years from now, whenever yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, Zuck's a stone cold killer. And so he, it's pretty rare that he loses, uh, especially in something like this, which is like right in a sweet spot. I think my sense is that they're going to evolve separate communities. I think that Twitter will probably continue to be relevant for a long time, but not grow super quickly uh, or maybe even shrink. And I think threads will kind of uh, potentially, you know, grow and, and be like a, a whole separate community. But, you know, it is hard to say. I'm, I'm actually a little less. Uh, I'm more curious how Instagram and threads trade off against each other as opposed to how Twitter and threads trade off yeah. against each other. I think that's a really interesting question that's it, going through my head. Right yeah, now. I can see that. Yeah, there's definitely. Yeah, there, there's there's definitely nuances. It seems like a lot of the Instagram crowd just jumped over to threads uh, from what I've seen yeah, yeah. in terms of who's on there versus a lot of net new people. But who knows? We're, it's super early on. And then what, what you, you said you had a real positive experience with uh, Mark Zuckerberg. What was your experience with him in meetings and, and things like that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming to be best friends with the guy, but I, I did... Um... You know, I did work there when the company was uh, was pretty small and you would, would be in meetings with them from time to time. And, you know, I mean, there's just like a couple of situations where, you know, ahead of the IPO, we were hustling to um, really shore up a lot of things in the core Facebook product. So, like, I was on Facebook Photos. Um, I was leading the development of the photo viewing experience. And so we had to basically, like, move the ads above the fold, um, which was going to result in a net increase of, you know, 30% of of revenue on that product surface area or something. Um, it was like some huge number. And so like he was in the bi-weekly product reviews with us. And so, you know, I would say normally the designer gets the brunt of the criticism in those types of meetings, but you know, he, he did a really good job of like digging in and being really direct and like cutting to the core of the, the, the issue. 
while at the same time, uh, you know, he's like pretty respectful and, and uh, a nice guy to work around. Um, he also invited me to play roller hockey once, but I was too afraid of like, uh, I don't know, like accidentally injuring a CEO or something. So I didn't, uh, didn't take him up on that. Do you wish you could go back on that one? So you could, you could have the, I played roller hockey with uh, Mark Zuckerberg story or no? No, because there were interns that would injure themselves on the campus all the time. Uh, and, uh, and like the fire department was like constantly being called because people <laughs> really? were, like, skateboarding or ripsticking. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, a, it was like kind of a meme at Facebook HQ back in the early days. Okay. That's wild. Yeah. It's so funny. And this is totally different, but related. I, uh, played football my entire life, like since second grade, I always played tackle football and even played in, played in, you know, all through eighth grade. Then I played in high school. Then I played in college. So my junior year really never got hurt. And then I started playing after I graduated and uh, probably got the most hurt I ever did at the age of 30. Uh, and guys were dropping like flies, like broken arm. I mean, you name it. This was like two, this was like flag, right? So it's just, mm-hmm. it's, I could see why you'd have some apprehension towards doing that, especially if it was kind of like the same environment with the uh, roller hockey. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel like once I entered my 30s, it's like, oh, I got up from the chair the wrong way. No, like <laughs> yeah, I so got true. like a stitch in my side. What the hell's so going on? So true, man. Okay, <laughs> so let, let, let's keep moving along. That's, those are some great stories. Okay, what about, you know, your last company, Smite, right, in terms of that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it looks like you had, and correct me if this is wrong, but this is just what the interwebs told me, right? It, it said that mm-hmm. you basically sold Smite to, for 65 mil to Twitter. Uh, is that... You know, first of all, A, is that accurate? And then B, what was that experience like? Uh, the, the number was higher, but um, but that's like the that's a ballpark. Yeah. OK, cool. Um, so what was that? So first of all, like, I guess, how did the question that comes to mind is like, first of all, how did that happen? And then I got a follow up question that that I would love to understand in terms of your journey. Yeah, so we uh, let's see. So we did trust and safety as a service, right? So the idea here was I was at Facebook, we acquired Instagram, Instagram plugged in their trust and safety system or uh, Instagram on like, like day one plugged into Facebook's trust and safety systems to try to find the spam and abuse. And then we uh, we ended up realizing that that could make for like a pretty good startup. And so we ended up spinning out, um, you know, an independent company that was building like Facebook style trust and safety tools for everybody else. And so we, uh, we targeted social networks and marketplaces and pretty much every social network or marketplace that wasn't owned by Google or Facebook, uh, ended up becoming, uh, you know, customer of ours. So, you know, like Twitter and Reddit and Quora and medium and, um, like TikTok and, uh, GoFundMe, like those, those sorts of logos were, 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 uh, customers of ours back in the day. TikTok was around and back so, then? Uh, they're called Musically, uh, but nobody remembers the name Musically. But okay. um, that, that, they that sounds familiar, TikTok. actually. But anyways, go ahead. Sorry, that just struck me as odd. Yeah, TikTok started as as Musically, which was a lip syncing app, um, <laughs> and they grew very, very rapidly um, globally, but especially in the United States. And so they needed a, a trusted safety solution that they could pull off the shelf quickly. So they they went to us. Okay, so keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you. That just caught me off guard a little bit. So yeah, yeah. So. Um, uh, we ended up uh, building a building a pretty awesome business. I think um, we grew it to um, a couple million uh, ARR in about three and a half years, which uh, was a pretty fast ramp. Um, but you know, from day one of starting the company, there was this question about, hey, how many social networks and marketplaces are there really? And um, 
what we kind of came to the conclusion that we were going to have to expand our TAM um, in order to to survive. Uh, and we had we made a couple swings at it that none of them really landed. Um, and so uh, eventually uh, we had gotten um, you know some interest from our second largest customer, which was Twitter, uh, to buy the company. This was back in um, late 2017, early 2018, if I recall correctly. And, you know, eventually we, we kind of uh, said no for a little bit. Um, but then over time we started to realize, hey, you know, maybe we should sell the company at this point. And so we sold to Twitter. Okay. So how, how long did the process take to sell? Um, you know, there's the will they, they, will they or won't they stage, which for us I think was like a year. Okay. Um, uh, for uh, you know other companies, it can take a really long time, or it can happen really quick. But for for us, you know, there, I think the the first inkling of that was maybe you know nine months to a year. And you were only at two happened. and a half mil when you sold, or were you bigger then? No, 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 we were we were we were above that. Um, we had a couple million in revenue. Um, like I think it was around like five. Okay. Uh, so how how did you get this? How did you create enough enterprise value for that that valuation, especially because your town was smaller, like? How did that happen? Because it seems like real a real high valuation um, for that. So I'd be curious on what your your take is on that. Well, you know, it's a Twitter viewed it as an existential threat. Um, not not us, but the the challenge of spam and abuse and bots and and uh, cyberbullying and all that stuff. And I mean, if you if you think back to that era, right, early twenty eighteen, this was the era of. You know, there was a lot of press around Cambridge Analytica. There was a lot of press around misinformation and fake news and fake accounts and social media manipulation. And, you know, there was a lot of potential regulation coming down the pipe. And I think that Twitter really wanted to accelerate their efforts in this department. And so there are a number of ways you can do that. Um, you can build internally uh, or you could buy. And actually, I think the fastest way to make progress is to chop the problem up into separable subproblems give some to the vendor, give some to the internal teams, um, as long as there's some sort of unifying strategy. So we actually were their cut or they were our customer for a while. Um, and then, all, uh, you know, after, after that period of time, they, they ended up buying us. Okay. And then you, how, you stayed on for a while, didn't you at Twitter? Yeah. I stayed there for about three and a half years. Well, what was that like? What was that experience like? And uh, we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that and just kind of how things are going today with Twitter. Yeah, so I, I left the company uh, January of 2022. So that was before all the Elon stuff. My Me leaving Twitter had like nothing to do with Elon. It was before anything was even a, a glimmer in Elon's eye. Um, but uh, in terms of like what the, you want to know what the company was kind of like while I was there? Is that, was that well, the Well, yeah, just like what it was like, what your experience was. And then, you know, because like, you've been through two of the biggest tech companies you know, you sold the one. So it's just interesting to hear your perspective on what's that like and any, anything that you took for your, you know, to your next, to the elemental right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say uh, if you were to compare and contrast Facebook and Twitter, um, very different companies, very different companies. Um, so Facebook, at least when I was there, move fast and break things was the motto. So it was velocity above all else. Like there was, there's really strong engineering at both companies. Um, but Facebook really valued speed of delivery above everything okay. else. And also um, built a really broad feature set very quickly. So like 
you know, there was like on a, it's on a seemingly weekly basis, there were like huge new features going out. So there was like a mobile camera, there was timeline, there was like a gifts product, like uh, gifts, like you could really give someone a gift card or like buy them flowers or something. And okay, them I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a whole events product of, um, uh, there was a like a long form blogging product, uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and, and, um, and so, Oh yeah. There was like social listening on Spotify too. I don't know if you remember that, but like you could listen to songs with a friend on Facebook. Uh, there was like, and, and you could even like, I think you watch Netflix together too. Okay. Uh, wow, so there's like all sorts. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is like, there's like tons of stuff that was shipping all the time. Um, Twitter's approach is very different. They are like a keep it simple, really constrain the, you know, the product, keep it like very lean and mean. And it just ended up kind of producing, um, you know, very different culture, uh, very different product strategy. Um, you know, I'm not saying one is better than the other necessarily, but they just ended up being very different cultures. Okay. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. So when you decided to create Elemental, like, how did you design a culture for that intentionally based on your experiences? So, you know, the, the company was actually originally started by Nick Schrock, who was my good friend. Um, and I, I joined a little later. Okay. And so, um, you know, he he came from Facebook as well. Uh, he's, he was there before me and he stayed um, after me. And, uh, you know, he was kind of looking around at and, and, and wanted to solve a really, really societally important problem. So if you take a look at what social media is doing, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're having massive impact on the world. But I don't think anybody would really say that they are solving critical societal problems, right? Like not in the same way that, you know, energy or financial services or, um, you know, bioinformatics are mm-hmm. right. Like, you know, not Facebook's not curing cancer. Um, but so, so he wanted to do something like that. So he talked to a lot of these folks that were doing these things and they said, Hey, our biggest problem is that we are trying to make data driven decisions. We are data businesses. we got to make decisions based on objective data and the data has to be right. And the problem is we have no control over our data. We do not know where it's coming from. We do not know where it's going. We do not have a good handle for whether it's up to date or not, whether it's passing its quality checks. And it's just a big mess. And the problem's getting worse because they're buying more tools. Their stakeholders are getting um, are coming to them with, with, with more complex asks. And regulators are coming in with more complex regulations. And, and they're asking all sorts of compliance questions. And so uh, Nick started the company to uh, tame this problem of big complexity. And so what we like to say is that, you know, the past decade was a decade of big data. We learned how to kind of adopt these cloud data warehouses and these big data tools to compute on large data sets. It's like a solved problem, but it's created a problem higher up in the stack, which is this problem of big complexity. 
So how do we manage the complexity that computing and big data has created? So people have bought, you know, hundreds of SaaS products. They have thousands of, of different data pipelines producing tens or hundreds of thousands of data assets. Mm-hmm. How do you tame that complexity? Well, that's why we started the company to, to, to solve okay. it. Which makes a lot of sense in that. And yeah, I think. what? So how do you think? This has got to be great for your business, I would imagine, with like the 10,000 AI tools that have been released this year. Uh, how is that affecting your business and the large language models? Well, we are watching it carefully. Um, we're not changing our strategy based on it at this time. Uh, I think that there's a couple of different ways to think about about these these large language models. So um, the, the first is that they're not uh, reliable, right? So I would say this is the biggest... Um, maybe point of view that I strongest held point of view that I have right now mm-hmm. is that I don't think they fundamentally affect large language models are, are going to fundamentally affect our product strategy unless they get much more reliable. So if you think about why people use our product, again, they are building mission critical data pipelines that have to be correct. That is why you pay data engineers to do this. If you report bad numbers to Wall Street, you're going to have a bad time. If you catalog your drug discovery information incorrectly, like you're going to have a bad time. Um, large language models, they hallucinate, so they can be like a little bit unreliable and they're hard to trust. So you have to have a human kind of, uh, you know, audit the the output, right? So they're great for co-pilot types of products, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not for mission critical data pipelines, at least not yet. Open to that changing, but like currently what we've got right now, they're not going to be part of mission critical data pipeline. So what we do see customers using them for are, um, are areas where humans either like audit the results or where they do things that existing automation can't do and humans are not cost effective to do. So for example, you know, doing data labeling tasks with GPT-4, that's a common thing that people will use Daxter to do. They'll take their source data asset, they'll use Daxter to orchestrate the calls to GPT-4, um, you know, annotate the data appropriately and then store it in some other system. Okay, interesting. So that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I've seen that firsthand. Uh, any language model that you're most impressed with out of everything or AI model for that fact? Yeah, you know, I've, I've played around with a bunch of them. Um, so, I mean, GPT-4 is still the one that is has the most impressive results. But there are a couple that I, I'm really excited about the, the small models. Mm-hmm. So there are these like, there's these emerging like smaller parameter models. Like it, one that's really good is called MPT7B, which is by Mosaic ML, which was recently acquired by Databricks. Um, you can run models of that size like on your phone or on your laptop and run it locally. Really? And I think that that's really exciting. Yeah. I think that the open, and a lot of these models are open source and free to use, uh, even for commercial purposes now. And I think we're going to start to see, you know, sometime in the next year or so, models that are that are competitive maybe with GPT-3 or 3.5, like the the um, the free version of ChatGPT, not the paid mm-hmm. GPT-4 version. Like we might see those um, available widely, and where that is a, is really good news for the enterprise is, is, you know, you can run those things in your own infrastructure. You don't have to send your data, um, which might be quite sensitive to, to a third party. You can just run it locally on your own infrastructure. Hmm, interesting. So let, let's talk about your business a little bit. Shift, go back to Elemental uh, a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. So what, 
it's a really u- unique time in business. It's that you mentioned your business is PLG plus sales, mostly inbound. So what's the biggest challenge that you have in growing your business today? The biggest challenge, I would say the most acute pain that we feel right now is, um, you know, we're, we're a rapidly growing startup and we are open source led. So all of that inbound that comes in, it does come with a price, right? Which is we've developed and fostered an open source community where anybody can come in, you know, off the proverbial street and enter our Slack community and ask questions. And those questions can be of varying quality. And we do our best to, to support the open source community with, with knowledge and resources and answering their questions. But really understanding, um, you know, what is the most scalable way to support that community? Like that, that is like one of the biggest problems that we're facing as a business right now. So how do you tackle it? Uh, I mean, we're, we're trying a bunch of things. So I think the first thing that we did was we, um, you know, I I had brought in a new um, head of engineering uh, towards the end of last year. And one of the first things she did, she was tasked with was like, Hey, start to make progress on this problem. And so uh, she's really leveled up our process around it. So, you know, every time a question comes in, we have systems that automatically catalog it. We use Airtable as kind of like our, our support tool, believe it or not, but it's actually quite flexible and really, really, uh, really useful tool. And so our systems come and kind of automatically triage it as best they can using, you know, um, combination of kind of manual curation um, with, with like a, a review queue as well as automation based on keywords. And we even have an ML model that's trained to auto classify stuff. And um, that generally triages it in the right category. And then we report on the time to solve and we try to drive our um, support on calls to, to hit their SLAs. And that has, um, that has really helped. Uh, we also have an effort that, you know, we, we retroactively look at the last couple of weeks of questions and we uh, try to turn those into um, some sort of evergreen and discoverable content. So that can take the form of, you know, building a, um, a documentation page for it, or it could take the form of, you know, posting a Q&A, hosting a Q&A session on a discussion forum that's then indexable by Google. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways that we do it, but, uh, but largely it's, it's been dialing in our process around that. However, you know, there's still much more work to do. We're, this is actually one of the areas where we are looking at um, generative AI to help us solve this. Um, so, you know, we're currently experimenting with like GPT-4 to help us um, make that triaging even better um, and, and help our on-calls work more effectively. So rather than like put a GPT-4-powered support bot in front of everybody, which I think is what a lot of people have kind of tried and failed to do, mm-hmm. we're viewing this as tools to supercharge our support on-calls. That makes a lot of sense, to, yeah. uh, to, yeah. So what, what have you done that or I, I should say now that you've gone through the startup game twice, you've also had the big company experience, which is unique. You have kind of the big and small experience. What would you say is the single best strategy you've seen to grow a business um, that, that you would recommend to someone who's, who's creating a, a startup? Uh, the analogy I like to use is running. So I think there's a, a couple ways that you can um, get really good at running and run a marathon, right? The first is you can get a coach, you can get really nice sneakers, you can have them video you running and make sure that your alignment of your knees are perfect and stuff like that. And then really work on your mental game and think about, um, you know, how hard are you going to push at this leg? How, you know, how can you back off when somebody kind of drifts off of you, et cetera. The other way you can do it is you can just run a lot. Um, And I think that 
like you have to earn that first part uh, by running a lot. Um, so before you can can have the great strategy and the great tools and, the, and all that stuff, you just need to put in the reps, right? And so one of the things that ended up tripling um, our, our website traffic in just a couple of months, I think it was like two months, um, was I, I went to our, our head of marketing and said, listen, we have to have a blog post out every week. Like it has to be high quality and it has to be a blog post out every week. Uh, but it, other than that, I don't actually even care what it's about. I mean, it should vaguely relate to our <laughs> business. Like it shouldn't be some sort of like crazy out there thing, but like whatever story we can tell, like, let's just tell it and be really consistent. And what that ended up doing was, you know, we built an audience for our blog, uh, people, we developed a reputation for having high quality content and interesting and a wide variety of content. And, you know, over time, the Google bot picks it up and, and we start to develop SEO. And so I, I think that that's, that was one thing that I think worked really well. And, and over time, we've re refined it a bit. And so now we have a pretty good pipeline for taking those blog posts, charting them into to short YouTube videos. And then the YouTube recommender kind of helps, helps oh, drive okay. traffic too. And then do you embed the YouTube videos with the blog to boost, sure do. boost it up? Is that what you do? Yeah. Yep. That's one of the things that I've heard works really well um, for yeah. that. So, so with the writing then for the blogs, you said a three extra traffic on your website. Is that correct? Is that what I heard you say? Yeah. Yeah. And the first it's, it's higher than that now. Um, but the, the initial results after the first two months or so of doing it were yeah. So how many hits do you have on your website then? I, I don't know. Um, I, I have to open up Google analytics to take a look, but, uh, but it's, it's very healthy. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Congrats on that. Did you have a external writer do it or um, do you use AI tools and internal combo or would you, would you kind of do? So we started by generating the content internally. So we would basically, we would do a call for stories internally. So sales would flag interesting customer stories. Engineering would flag interesting technical blogs product would would flag, you know, product announcements. And so we would have just a writer internally, you know, kind of write a rough draft. And then our marketing team would take that and refine it and get it into a publishable state. That's how we started. Um, that is uh, very labor intensive, especially when you're trying to stick to the once a week. Oh yeah. Cadence. That's a, yeah. That's a lot. So, uh, you know, I think startups generally like need to work a lot on top of funnel. So I felt fine making that sacrifice for a while, but you know, it's an, it's an incremental process, right? So we iterated on it and we, uh, we eventually, uh, what do we do next? So we, we do have, you know, one or two contract writers that do help us out and they, they publish under their own name. Um, and, uh, it took us a while to find people that were really good, but once we found them, like we, we actually, uh, we've been able to successfully leverage contract writers. It just does take a couple of tries to find people that are, that are really good. Um, we, we had good luck with like grad students who were looking for part-time gig They're They want to make a, a, build a brand for themselves going into this horrible job market for technical talent right now. And so, uh, you know, we gave them a great deal with, we said, Hey, we'll pay you. Um, you can use your name on the, on the blog post. And we just kind of want you to, you know, focus on these couple of topics. Okay. Love that, man. And last but not least, I got one more question before we wrap up and tell, and you tell people where they can find you. What would you say is your, your number one piece of advice for organizations that are trying to find product market fit right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a, 
picking the number one is is definitely uh, definitely a challenge. I mean, for, first of all, th that thing that I said about just doing something consistently and putting in the reps, like Paul Graham says, do things that don't scale. It's the same thing, right? It's just like, just do the work at the top of funnel. Like at a certain extent, it's like a, it's a muscle that you have to build and it takes a lot of, of repetitive activities to do that. And so I think that every startup founder I've ever talked to, they, they undervalue the top of the funnel. Um, and so they find themselves trying to catch up and build pipeline too late in the game. So I would definitely try to get ahead of that as much as possible. Yeah, distribution is the new moat. Not the new moat, but what but a lot of folks are pointing to. I think the CMO of Zapier highlighted that as just like because of the proliferation and of tools, depending on what you have and the no code platforms and other areas, he's just like, hey, distribution's like a massive competitive advantage. As you can see with threads, right? You know, they went from zero mm -hmm. to hundred million users in a week because they they had massive distribution already built up. So um, yeah. Anyways, uh, well, you know what, Pete? Love, I should say Pete. Not, not. I'm not going to call you Pete Hunt. I'm going to call you Pete. Pete. Is it? It was an awesome episode. Really love having you on. Where can people find you? Where can they find more about Elemental? And then we'll wrap things up. Yeah. So uh, you should check out the Dagster Project website, Dagster.io, and we have a community page, Dagster.io/community. That's where you can find all the community members, including myself. And I'm, I'm search Pete Hunt on Twitter. I'm going to be the first result. So awesome. Um, well, yeah. thank you for listening and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out the Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.